0: Section fifteen of the Evil Guest. The Slibrivox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan LaFanou. Section fifteen. Charles listened with breathless attention to this recital, and after a painful interval said Then the actual murderer is after all, unascertained. This is indeed horrible it was very natural that my father should have felt the danger to which such a disclosure would have exposed the reputation of our family. Yet I should have preferred encountering it were it ten times as great to the equivocal prudence of suppressing the truth with respect to a murder committed under my roof. He has, however, it would seem, arrived at some new conclusions, said Dr. Danvers, and is now prepared to throw some unanticipated light upon the whole transaction. Even as they were talking a knocking was heard at the hall door, and after a brief and hurried consultation it was agreed that, considering the strict condition of privacy attached to this visit by Mr. Marston himself, as well as his reserved and wayward temper, it might be better for Charles to avoid presenting himself to his father on this occasion. A few seconds afterwards the door opened and Mr. Marston entered the apartment. It was now dark, and the servant, unbidden, placed candles upon the table without answering one word to doctor danvers' greeting marston sat down as it seemed in agitated abstraction removing his hat suddenly for he had not even made this slight homage to the laws of courtesy he looked round with a careworn fiery eye and a pale countenance and said we are quite alone doctor danvers no one anywhere near doctor danvers assured him that all was secure after a long and agitated pause marston said You remember Merton's confession. He admitted his intention to kill Berkeley, but denied that he was the actual murderer. He spoke truth. No one knew it better than I. For I am the murderer. Dr. Danvers was so shocked and overwhelmed that he was utterly unable to speak. I, sir, in point of law and of morals, literally and honestly, the murderer of Winston Berkeley. I am resolved you shall know it all, make what use of it you will i care for nothing now but to get rid of the damned unsustainable secret and that is done i did not intend to kill the scoundrel when i went to his room but with the just feelings of exasperation with which i regarded him it would have been wiser had i avoided the interview and i meant to have done so but his candle was burning i saw the light through the door and went in it was his evil fortune to indulge in his old strain of sardonic impertinence he provoked me i struck him he struck me again, and with his own dagger I stabbed him three times. I did not know what I had done. I could not believe it. I felt neither remorse nor sorrow. Why should I? But the thing was horrible, astounding. There he sat in the corner of his cushioned chair, with the old fiendish smile on, still. Sir, I never thought that any human shape could look so dreadful. I don't know how long I stayed there, freezing with horror and detestation, and yet unable to take my eyes from the face did you see it in the coffin sir there was a sneer of triumph on it that was diabolic and prophetic marston was fearfully agitated as he spoke and repeatedly wiped from his face the cold sweat that gathered there i could not leave the room by the back stairs he resumed for the valet slept in the intervening chamber i felt such an appalled antipathy to the body that i could scarcely muster courage to pass it but sir i am not easily cowed i mastered this repugnance in a few minutes or rather I acted spite of it, I knew not how. But instinctively it seemed to me that it was better to lay the body in the bed than leave it where it was, showing, as its position might, that the thing occurred in an altercation. So, sir, I raised it, and bore it softly across the room, and laid it in the bed. And while I was carrying it, it swayed forward. The arms glided round my neck, and the head rested against my cheek. That was a parody upon a brotherly embrace. "'I do not know at what moment it was, but some time when I was carrying Winston, or laying him in the bed,' continued Marston, who spoke rather like one pursuing a horrible reverie than as a man relating facts to a listener. I heard a light tread and a soft breathing in the lobby. A thunderclap would have stunned me less that minute. I moved softly, holding my breath to the door. I believe in moments of strong excitement men hear more acutely than at other times.' but I thought I heard the rustling of a gown going from the door again. I waited. It ceased. I waited until all was quiet. I then extinguished the candle and groped my way to the door. There was a faint light in the corridor, and I thought I saw a head projected from the chamber door, next to the Frenchwoman's, Mademoiselle's. As I came on, it was softly withdrawn, and the door not quite noiselessly closed. I could not be absolutely certain, but I learned all afterward." And now, sir, you have the story of Sir Winston's murder. Dr. Danvers groaned in spirit, being wrung alike with fear and sorrow. With hands clasped and head bowed down, in an exceeding bitter agony of soul, he murmured only the words of the litany, Lord, have mercy upon us, Christ, have mercy upon us, Lord, have mercy upon us. Marston had recovered his usual lowering aspect and gloomy self-possession in a few moments, and was now standing erect and defiant before the humbled and afflicted minister of God. The contrast was terrible, almost sublime. Dr. Danvers resolved to keep this dreadful secret, at least for a time, to himself. He could not make up his mind to inflict upon those whom he loved so well as Charles and Rhoda the shame and agony of such a disclosure yet he was sorely troubled, for his was a conflict of duty and mercy, of love and justice. He told Charles Marston, when urged with earnest inquiry, that what he had heard that evening was intended solely for his own ear, and gently but peremptorily declined telling, at least until some future time, the substance of his father's communication. Charles now felt it necessary to see his father for the purpose of letting him know the substance of the letter respecting Mademoiselle and the late Sir Winston which had reached him accordingly he proceeded accompanied by dr danvers on the next morning to the hotel where marston had intimated his intention of passing the night on their inquiring for him in the hall the porter appeared much perplexed and disturbed and as they pressed him with questions his answers became conflicting and mysterious mr marston was there he had slept there last night he could not say whether or not he was then in the house but he knew that no one could be admitted to see him he would if the gentleman wished it send their cards to, not Mr. Marston, but the proprietor, and finally he concluded by begging that they would themselves see the proprietor, and dispatched a waiter to apprise him of the circumstances of the visit. There was something odd and even sinister in all this which, along with the whispering and the curious glances of the waiters, who happened to hear the errand on which they came, inspired the two companions with vague misgivings, which they did not care mutually to disclose. In a few moments they were shown into a small sitting-room upstairs, where the proprietor, a fussy little gentleman, and apparently very uneasy and frightened, received them. "'We have called here to see Mr. Marston,' said Dr. Danvers, "'and the porter has referred us to you.' "'Yes, sir, exactly. Precisely so,' answered the little man, fidgeting excessively, and, as it seemed, growing paler every instant. "'But—but in fact, sir, there is—there has been—in short—' Have you not heard of the... the accident? He wound up with a prodigious effort, and wiped his forehead when he had done. Pray, sir, be explicit. We are near friends of Mr. Marston. In fact, sir, this is his son, said Dr. Danvers, pointing to Charles Marston. And we are both uneasy at the reserve with which our inquiries have been met. Do, I entreat you, say what has happened. What... why... hesitated the man. I really... I would not, for five hundred pounds, it had happened in my house. The the unhappy gentleman has... In short... He glanced at Charles, as if afraid of the effect of the disclosure he was on the point of making, and then hurriedly said, "'He is dead, sir. He was found dead in his room, this morning, at eight o'clock. I assure you I have not been myself ever since. Charles Marshton was so stunned by this sudden blow that he was upon the point of fainting.' rallying however with a strong effort he demanded to be conducted to the chamber where the body lay the man assented but hesitated on reaching the door and whispered something in the ear of dr danvers who as he heard it raised his hands and eyes with a mute expression of horror and turning to charles said my dear young friend remain where you are for a few moments i will return to you immediately and tell you whatever i have ascertained you are in no condition for such a scene at present Charles indeed felt that the fact was so, and sick and giddy suffered Dr. Danvers with gentle compulsion to force him to a seat. In silence the venerable clergyman followed his conductor. With a palpitating heart he advanced to the bedside, and twice essayed to draw the curtain, and twice lost courage. But gathering resolution at last, he pulled the drapery aside, and beheld all he was to see again of Richard Marston. The bedclothes were drawn so as nearly to cover the mouth. There is the wound, sir whispered the man, as with coarse officiousness he drew back the bedclothes from the throat of the corpse, and exhibited a gash, as it seemed, nearly severing the head from the body. With sickening horror Dr. Danvers turned away from the awful spectacle. He covered his face in his hands, and it seemed to him as if a soft, solemn voice whispered in his ear the mystic words, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. The hand which but a few years before had unsuspected, consigned a fellow mortal to the grave, had itself avenged the murder. Marston had perished by his own hand. Naturally ambitious and intriguing, the perilous tendencies of such a spirit in Mademoiselle de Barras had never been schooled by the mighty and benignant principles of religion. Of her accidental acquaintance at Rouen of Sir Winston Berkeley, and her subsequent introduction in an evil hour into the family at Grey Forest, it is unnecessary to speak the unhappy terms on which she found marston living with his wife suggested in their mutual alienation the idea of founding a double influence in the household and to conceive the idea and to act upon it were in her active mind the same young beautiful fascinating she well knew the power of her attractions and determined though probably without one thought of transgressing the limits of literal propriety to bring them to bear upon the discontented retired Rouet, for whom she cared absolutely nothing, except as the instrument, and in part the victim, of her schemes. Thus yielding to the double instinct that swayed her, she gratified at the same time her love of intrigue and her love of power. At length, however, came the hour which demanded a sacrifice to the evil influence she had hitherto worshipped on such easy terms. She found that her power must now be secured by crime, and she fell. Then came the arrival of Sir Winston, his murder, her elopement with Marston, and her guilty and joyless triumph. At last, however, came the blow, long suspended and terrific, which shattered all her hopes and schemes, and drove her once again upon the world. The catastrophe we have just described. After it she made her way to Paris. Arrived in the capital of France, she speedily dissipated whatever remained of the money and valuables which she had taken with her from Grey Forest and madame marston as she now styled herself was glad to place herself once more as a governess in an aristocratic family so far her good fortune had prevailed in averting the punishment but too well earned by her past life but a day of reckoning was to come a few years later france was involved in the uproar and conflagration of revolution noble families were scattered beggared decimated and their dependents often dragged along with them into the flaming abyss, in many instances suffered the last dire extremities of human ill. It was at this awful period that a retribution so frightful and extraordinary overtook Madame Marston, that we may hereafter venture to make it the subject of a separate narrative. Until then the reader will rest satisfied with what he already knows of her history. And meanwhile, but a long, and as it may possibly turn out, an eternal farewell to that beautiful embodiment of an evil and disastrous influence the concluding chapter in a novel is always brief though seldom so short as the world would have it in a tale like this the winding up must be proportionately contracted we have scarcely a claim to so many lines as the formal novelist may occupy pages in the distribution of poetic justice and the final grouping of his characters into that effective tableau upon which at last the curtain gracefully descends we too may be all the briefer inasmuch as the reader has doubtless anticipated the little we have to say it amounts then to this within two years after the fearful event which we have just recorded an alliance had drawn together in nearer and dearer union the inmates of grey forest and newton park rhoda had given her hand to young mervyn of ulterior consequences we say nothing the nursery is above our province and now at length after this christmas journey through somewhat stern and gloomy scenery in this long deferred flood of golden sunshine we bid thee gentle reader a fond farewell and of section fifteen End of the evil guest by j sheridan le